0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. And historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 461st show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Anna Peterson, associate professor of history at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, who is going to talk to us about the history of Scandinavian immigration to the United States. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. The theme song for this show is titled "Kayla's Theme, which is written and performed by Mark Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. Dave Baker. To begin with, we'd like to welcome to our show, Dr. Anna Peterson. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thank
1: you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Oh, we're thrilled to have you. We call this first segment of the show Faruk Dinaran, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on when and why Scandinavian people decided to come to the United States. And my second question is, since my wife is Scandinavian American, just exactly when are they going to quit thinking they're going to try to conquer the world? That's my second question.
1: (laughs) I don't know if there's any end in sight for that one. <laughs> oh,
2: thank can you. can answer
1: that one up?
3: <laughs> right well, off the
0: Rick, bat. Our, our manager's wife is uh, our, our communications person, our good friend Rick Sweet. His wife's Scandinavian, too, so uh, we can correlate. But go ahead, well, the first one. Why did they come here?
1: Okay, why did they come here? Well, I think that the majority of immigrants who came in the late 19th century, not just Scandinavians, but the majority of them who came from Europe, were seeking economic opportunity, um, and so... I can talk a little bit about earlier history. So if we're thinking about Scandinavians as separate national groups of Danes, Swedes, and Norwegians, then Swedes actually had a presence in the United States as early as the 1600s in what would become the state of Delaware. But it's not until about 1850 or so that we see mass immigration from those Scandinavian countries. The Swedes came a little bit more frequently, about 1.2 million Swedes left Sweden between 1850 and 1930 and came to the United States. But in terms of per capita... The Norwegians left in greater numbers. Um, around a million Norwegians came between eighteen twenty and nineteen twenty more than any other percentage of the population than Ireland and then the Danes were a lot smaller in numbers, so just a couple hundred thousand Danes came during the same period of time. So that's kind of the the numbers piece, if you will, and yeah, a lot of them were seeking economic opportunity. their countries had had population booms in the late nineteenth century. There was an agricultural crisis in the 1860s that led to famine, political unrest, and an increase in poverty. But most of the people who were coming were not extremely impoverished. They had enough money that they could buy their tickets um, to come across on ships. And so they weren't the poorest of the poor. And I think that sometimes that's a misconception that we have, that these are like the most destitute people who are leaving. But that's not the fact. Um, that's not, in fact, the case because they needed the money to be able to leave. And so a lot of people were coming, especially after the Homestead Act of 1862 in search of free land. These are agricultural societies, predominantly rural agricultural economies in the Scandinavian countries. And so these people had experience with agricultural production. And because of some of these earlier settlements in the 16th, 17 earlier 1800s, they had existing patterns of settlement in the United States. And so when this kind of free land and opportunity opened up, a lot of people felt like that wasn't an opportunity they could afford to ignore. And so because of when the Homestead Act comes into play, most of them are going to settle in the upper Midwestern states of Minnesota Wisconsin, Iowa, North Dakota, and South Dakota. But of course, we find other large population centers. Swedes in particular are going to be a little bit more of an urban group, especially after that first wave of immigration. And they're going to settle in a lot of cities, particularly Chicago is going to have a large concentration of Swedish immigrants, Um, but also Seattle, Minneapolis, of course. And then a lot of Norwegians and some other Scandinavians are going to go to Texas, and a lot of Danes are going to go to Utah because of their involvement in the Mormon church.
0: Also, if I recall, because um, I teach this in class, um, there was a large population of Finns that moved to Utah for uh, mining the uh, Schofield mining disaster that happened in uh, 1900, which was the largest mining disaster in the history of uh, our nation up to that point. Uh, a great number of them that, that died were of Finnish background. Is that not true? They had a, They had a movement out there.
1: Yeah, yep, they did. And the Finns are also going to settle up on the Iron Range in Minnesota as well and participate in mining there around Duluth, but also kind of up near Hibbing, Minnesota, and and be involved in the iron ore industry there as well.
0: Okay, well, uh, then the question is, uh, which I didn't have a clue is, were these individuals like the Welsh that came over that had experience in mining before, or was it that they just went underground because it was a job?
1: I think both. Both. Um, I think that some people had experience in the mines, but also if we're thinking about the Finns, we can say this about all immigrants, um, but also Scandinavian immigrants and Nordic immigrants, is that they're encountering a racialized hierarchy in the United States. Um, And the Finns in particular are seen as other um, and seen as not Scandinavian and not necessarily white. And so they're also then participating in some forms of labor that um, that are open to them, um, that are kind of more lowly jobs that they see the opportunity there. And so I think that that's another reason that we see Finns participating in the mining industry, like like some other groups, like Chinese laborers, right, are working on the railroad and things like that. And actually, there's a pretty famous case of Finns being. Um, lynched in Duluth. And so if we think about this kind of racialized aspect, I think that that is also at play in in the industries that they're participating in.
0: Wow. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
4: The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station, submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 88.5, 1061, or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org.
0: Hello and welcome back to the second segment of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show, which is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Anna Peterson, Associate Professor of History at Luther College, and we are talking about the history of Scandinavian immigration to the United States. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders, Terry, why don't you start us off, please? All
2: right, thank you. Yes, Anna, you had mentioned something that I found really interesting as far as the racial disparity uh, between the Finns and other Scandinavian countries. I think oftentimes we we paint Scandinavia with a very broad brush. But what was it about the racial disparity? Why did they see Finns as different from Norwegians and Danes and uh, Swedes here in America? Yeah, I
1: think that's a good question. Some of it is, Political and Finland's association with Russia and communism, particularly after 1917, um, that Finns are going to be seen as communists and therefore kind of associated with the Russians and kind of Eastern Asiatic races. They're not seen racially as being similar to Norwegians, Danes, and Swedes that are seen as being Nordic, a kind of European if you will, Aryan races, particularly after the 1920s. And, and when, we, when people are starting to classify races, they'll be classifying the Finns as more of an Asian race because of that proximity, but I think also because of this political association with communism. Okay.
3: Thank you. Um, Ed? Yeah, um, Anna, you mentioned that the Danes, uh, a lot of Danes wound up in Utah because of their affiliation with the uh, Mormon Church. Um, why was it? Why were the Danes drawn to this and apparently not the Norwegians or the Scandinavians, or uh, Swedes, I'm sorry?
1: Mm, I'm not sure if I can completely answer that question. I think that the Mormon missionaries had a much stronger presence in Denmark, um, and so Part of it has to do with that. Another, I think, reason for it has to do with the Norwegians and the Swedes who are settling in much greater numbers in the United States and therefore have their own kind of communities that are kind of based on the cultural traditions and heritages that they brought with them and that they're able to maintain because of these large communities um, in the United States where the day of are again much more dispersed, they're a much smaller number, um, and so in some ways the Mormon church and Mormon communities offer them that, that sense of community in the United States that they're not getting necessarily through ethnic ways.
0: Okay, um, a question I have, of course, we're down here in Scott County, and um, many of our uh, European ancestors were from Schlegwig-Holstein, which is on the German-Danish border. And um, Mm -hmm. when the many civil wars of 1848 in Europe happened, uh, many of um, the Germans or the Germans slash Danes, we really, it was (laughs) not like being from Iowa and Illinois back then, migrated here because of a religious war. They were having conflicts with the Lutheran church. Um, Do you know of any other instances where you had uh, other Scandinavians leave um, what was pretty much Norway, Denmark, Sweden, and Finland over religious issues instead of economic?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. And, I mean, the first planned migration from Norway, for example, was a bunch of religious dissenters. Um, who are leaving for religious reasons and seeking religious freedom in the United States. And they're just one group of many um, people who are coming for religious motivations. And like the Mormon example is, is another one. These churches, these Lutheran state churches in Scandinavia were quite strong and they didn't allow for a lot of diversity of interpretation or practice. And so people who even people who wanted to continue to be Lutherans um, and even who wanted to be con- continue to be Lutherans in a very similar way that they had been practicing under the state church, but who wanted a little bit more flexibility um, were drawn to the United States. But I think that that is a, a smaller group of people and, and in some ways maybe a secondary motivation for some people who are seeking the economic opportunity.
0: So, who said that the Puritans didn't have copycats? All right, we've established that, <laughs> Terry, you got a question
2: Yes, so Anna, you mentioned okay, so we talked about some of the differences um economic and religion religious reasons for coming to the u s but mentioned that in eighteen fifty there was a mass immigration from Scandinavia. So was there a common immigrant experience um, that our ancestors experienced coming over? Did they come over individually? or with an organized group, or how did that occur?
1: During mass immigration, so in the latter half of the 19th century, these are organized parties of people coming. And from Scandinavia, they're primarily families who are coming. So in other immigrant and migrant situations, we see maybe, for example, people seeking economic opportunity, but temporarily um, we might see a lot more men coming and not women and children. Um, But because these immigrants, most of them are coming for a long period of time. And with the intent to settle, they're coming as families. Um, of course, the majority of them are fairly young within kind of the prime of their lives. And that's an easier time to start over um, than it is when you're, you know, in your elder years. So we see fewer elderly people coming and, um, but the majority of them are coming as families with the intent to settle and to stay. Now, can we talk about a common immigration experience? I think that that is not necessarily the case. I mean, we can think about a general like this is the majority, but I think that there's always exceptions to the rule. And like I'm saying that most of them intended to settle, but of course, some people didn't. And there was a group of um, Norwegians who came from the southern part of Norway that were was kind of always heavily involved in the shipping industry. And many of them came to the Eastern United States, like New York, Brooklyn, um, participated in the shipping industry there, always with the intent of going back home again. So coming, making some money, and leaving again. And so we do see instances of that, but that's not the majority.
3: Okay. Ed? Yeah, Hannah, um, since you've mentioned people going back, um, the one place in Europe that nobody went back to was Ireland, because there was nothing to go back to. Where do the Swedes fit uh, on the scale? Because I think on the other end of people going back, where the, the Greeks went back in the greatest uh, numbers, and even then it wasn't a huge number, but where do the Scandinavians fit on that scale?
1: Yeah, I don't have exact statistics off the top of my head, but there were a significant number who participated in this return migration um, who came to the United States either always with the intent to return or who came, tried their luck, and things just didn't go the way that they wanted to and so left again. Um, there are there were some pretty major return migrant communities in the Scandinavian countries, um, where these return migrants kind of almost <laughs> brought, they brought back some of the culture and some of the commodities that they had in the United States and, and almost created like little Americas, um, within those countries. And you can go to some of those places today and, you know, there's people still driving like Cadillacs and there's signs that they've brought back. This would be more later into the 20th century. Um, So it wasn't the case that, you know, nobody was returning and that there wasn't something to go back to. Um, The majority of people stayed, but there were significant numbers of people who did go back, especially during times of economic decline, like the Great Depression. We see both immigration slowing, you know, fewer people coming and then also some people returning
0: Okay, so Anna, would you sit there and say, um, I know it's it's kind of hard to sit there and uh, decipher with occupations, but in my um, my wife is from North Central Iowa, which is has a large um, Norwegian and uh, Swedish population up there. Um, Most of them up there came for the opportunity of farming, as you said, with the Mm -hmm. Homestead Act, Um, and. It's very different up there in their world than it is in my world, because I grew up on a farm outside of Davenport, and the towns around us had churches, but we never felt that they were like the core of the community. But when I went to North Central Iowa with these uh, Scandinavian um, uh, established uh, American towns and villages, uh, that church is the core. Of that town, that county, whatever. Uh, Is that something that you would find in a constant in uh, most Scandinavian uh,
1: rural communities? Yeah, I think that, that that would likely be the case, the church being one of the unifying kind of factors in those ethnic communities. And I think Norwegians in particular were the most rural and agricultural of these immigrant groups, and they tended to settle together. They tended to be pretty slow to assimilate. Um, And one of the ways that they maintained their traditions and their language um,
2: was through the church. Okay. Hmm. Terry? Yes. Anna, can you talk about the legacy of our Scandinavian immigrants to Iowa? What do we see today, and, and how are they remembered?
0: When you answer this, don't make it something that can go to my wife's heads, please. Thank you.
3: <laughs> and leave Terry And leave Terry Branstad
0: out. Oh, okay. All right. And All right, cross that line. Go ahead, Doctor.
1: I think um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think one of the first things that comes to mind is Nordic Fest here in Decorah um, and the ways in which this migration is remembered at big kind of celebrations like that. Um, But I think that they're also remembered in a variety of other ways. So let's say like high school mascots being the Vikings or um, finding statues of the Vikings all over the place. I think that certain, you know, there are certainly high profile immigrants from the Scandinavian countries that were very influential in business. Like, for example, Walgreens was founded by a Swedish immigrant. Um, And so we see that kind of legacy as well. But I think that the greater legacy in in the ways in which kind of Scandinavian immigrants I remember today is through these big celebrations in which we see a lot of flags. We see maybe some national costumes. Food is really huge, like Lutefisk dinners and Lafsa, romagret. And then the kinds of cultural traditions like music, you know, listening to the fiddle or folk art, carving, things like that, as well as like this preoccupation that people have and association people have with the Vikings, with these immigrant groups, even though, of course, the Vikings (laughs) were medieval and, you know, these immigrants were mostly coming in the 19th century.
0: I noticed that, and I'm not saying other cultures do it, but the women, the Norwegian women in my family, in uh, my wife's community, they show their um, ethnic heritage through uh, fashion. I mean, I'm Irish, and of course, everyone's green around St. Paddy's. Everybody's Irish around then, just like everybody's supposedly good during Christmas. But um, the whole thing is the the Norwegian women, they're very much into the clothes and the attire. Uh, They modernize Mm -hmm. it, but more than I do a lot of other European cultures. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I don't know if they more than other cultures, but there's certainly a long tradition of that, um, even with the first immigrants coming, where people are trying to blend in to the United States and, and they're bringing with them dresses or fabrics that they think will kind of allow them to do that, trying to wear, for example, for women trying to wear dress styles that are in fashion in the United States where they wouldn't necessarily have been in these rural districts in Norway, but they're continuing to kind of show their ethnicity in subtle ways, like the use of the solia or this brooch um, that's, still a lot of people, a lot of women wear today, or by wearing a silk scarf or tying that scarf in a certain way. And so these very subtle ways that are kind of communicating ethnic identity was a part of dress from the very beginning. Now, men are were less likely to participate in that, and I think that you also see that today. Men are less likely to participate in that kind of demonstration of ethnic identity, partly because they're more involved in if we're thinking in the 19th century, the the, um, the public sphere and engaging in business and wanting to look as American as possible um, because of needing to negotiate these relationships that they're having kind of out in the world, like at the bank or at the feed store, for example. Okay. Ed?
3: Yes, um, I think of the Scandinavian community in general, but Norwegians in particular, as having a political history of being fairly progressive. Um, and if I'm wrong in that, go ahead and say so. But do you think, Professor, that that was due to the political situations and the restrictions from where that, whence they came? Or do you think that was inspired by their uh, liberal theology?
1: Well, I think that you're right and, and that Scandinavians are known for having these progressive, liberal, political values. I think that part of that is work that those groups did to try and very closely connect themselves to those values. Um, part of it, I think, has to do with their, their past and their background and the fact that Scandinavian countries are, at that time, fairly progressive on a number of issues Um, And that people were engaged politically, um, both mainly at the local level um, before they're coming. And then they're kind of participating in that way in the United States. Another reason for the progressivism is this kind of agricultural production that they're participating in and thinking about it in fairly communitarian ways. Um, And I think that those are values that they're bringing with them from Scandinavia and, and this, very isolated terrain um, in which they're having to work together. And we see kind of egalitarianism much higher in Scandinavia than other countries, um, such as, let's say, Germany then, for example. Um, And so some of it has to do with where they're coming from, but some of it also has to do with when they get to the United States, they're trying to create an identity. What does it mean to be, you know, Norwegian American or Swedish American or Danish American, and how can we make ourselves good Americans? And they're looking at these kind of American mythical values of you know equality and liberty, and saying, "Hey, you know, we have those values too, and look, we can even go all the way back to the Vikings, like and that they were having those values, and that this is a part of kind of who we are." It almost in a well in a biological sense um, as well as a cultural sense, if we're thinking about the late 19th early 20th centuries and they're saying this is who we are we we are progressive we're you know engaged in fights for equality and liberty and that this is how we've been the whole time and that they're doing that saying that in an effort to be included as americans and, and trying to tie themselves to some american values
0: Okay. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. Anna, in our last minute, why do you think knowing about immigration of Scandinavians to the United States is relevant in today's world? I think there's two reasons,
1: that I would say. And the first reason is that millions of Scandinavian descendants live in the United States today, and many of them have strong connections to that ethnic heritage, And so knowing about that history is important for those people to know who they are and where they came from and the realities of that. I think one thing that we didn't talk about today, but that's important to mention, is that one of the things that we often gloss over is that when Scandinavians were coming, they're dispossessing Native Americans of their land. And that's part of this agricultural um, opportunity that the Homestead Act opens up is by dispossessing Native Americans. And I think learning some of the uncomfortable parts of that history is really important for people who do have those connections um, to those people and to those places. And can so we that's do one the reason?
0: All right. Can we do the second reason in the podcast? Because we're going to come back and wrap things up. So please stay tuned. Uh, this has been a great show, and we'll continue with the podcast. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University 106.1 FM. <music>
4: you're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for Excellence in Public Affairs Journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
0: this concludes our 461st show of roi relevant or irrelevant our producer and engineers dave baker our program manager is rick sweet and the theme song for our show is titled kayla's theme which was written and performed by mark zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Anna Peterson, Associate Professor of History at Luther College, who talked with us about the history of Scandinavian immigration to the United States. The history bus for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on station KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KALA or ROI. We'd like to sit there and say wish the proverb to all our listeners, pulanala peace rain and prosperity uh and historians are horrible fortune tellers good day